Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 11. And then I also want to add a scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Let's uh, stand together as we read God's word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is not Greek one Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, inherit, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Most of us are familiar with Robert Louis Stevenson's classic story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, The respectable Dr. Jekyll has these dark, immoral impulses, but he can't act on them because he's such a respectable man in the community. But he's also a scientist, and in order to satisfy these dark desires, Dr. Jekyll creates a potion which he drinks... And once he drinks it, he turns into the sinister Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde has no moral boundaries. So when Mr. Hyde sort of appears after having drunk the potion, he goes out and acts on his every impulse. Uh, The turning point in the novel is when Dr. Jekyll turns into Mr. Hyde involuntarily. Before, Dr. Jekyll had to take the potion to turn into Mr. Hyde. But then as the story progresses, uh, the domination of Mr. Hyde begins to grow. And, and, And suddenly, involuntarily, the respectable Dr. Jekyll just begins to turn into Mr. Hyde. He no longer needs the potion. And eventually, Mr. Hyde's personality grows so dominant, he can't turn back into Dr. Jekyll. The Apostle Paul is well aware of this internal war that Stevenson so brilliantly writes about in his novel. Listen to uh, Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. I find this law at work in me. See if you find this law at work in you. 
When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. It's like a law. It's like a law that has to be. It seems like the Apostle Paul is saying every time I want to do good, the evil seems to rush in right beside in my inner being, I delight in God's law. So he, Paul's a Christian. He loves God's law. But then I see this other law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, trying to make me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within me. And then he kind of comes to this crashing conclusion in chapter 7. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who could possibly rescue me from this body? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I wonder how many of us are familiar with that struggle. That struggle that Stevenson says so clearly in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that Paul uh, says so clearly in Romans chapter 7, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. But fortunately, Paul has hope. He, he understands this ongoing war, but he has hope. He knows there's good news because you, you move right into chapter 8. And the first thing he says after he says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? The first thing he says is, therefore, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. See, if it was just left up to me, I'm a wretched man. I have no hope. But but Paul knows there's the hope. And that is that the person of Jesus Christ has come. He's he's taken the penalty of the sin. And so there's no condemnation. And he's not just taken the penalty of sin. He's actually given us his spirit. Chapter eight, verse 11. If the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead This spirit who raised Jesus out of the tomb, if he's living in you, he will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Therefore, we have an obligation by the spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. So Paul sees this battle. He sees Jesus. He understands there's now no condemnation. He's he's grasped the gospel or maybe better. The gospel's grasped him. And he knows that not only is he free from the penalty, he's also given this Holy Spirit, this this uh, personality, this person of Christ living in him. Now he can really wage effective battle against these sins that he finds in the members of his body. And he can begin to have success in putting those misdeeds to death. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Colossians. It's exactly what he's exhorting this congregation to do in chapter 3, verse 5. Look with me. He says, therefore, therefore, since you understand the gospel, this new church plant, they've, they've come out of this dark place in their culture. Now they're in this new church and they've embraced the gospel. And Paul's saying again, therefore, you, now that you know the gospel, that's chapters 1 and 2, Now begin to put to death what is earthly, verse 5, or begin to put to death your old self, verse 9. And what we see in these few verses, Paul refers, is Paul referring to three broad categories that every Christian needs to tackle in his or her life. 
So he could say a lot, but he says quite a few, not everything, but quite a few things. And really, I think he's addressing three broad categories. And we're going to address each one as the next three weeks goes by. The first broad category that every Christian must address is their sexual immorality. The second is covetousness, or sometimes referred to as greed. And third is anger, or what comes out of your mouth. Imagine, just for a moment, if you put to death all the things in these three categories in your life. Wow. What a difference. If I really struggled and put to death all the things in the category of sexual immorality, if I really struggled and put to death all the things in this greedy, covetousness type attitude, if I really put to death all the anger and the bitterness and the things that so easily come out of my mouth, if I put those things to death, what a, what a transformation there would be in this new person. And that's what Paul's calling us to. He, he, as I stated last week, at, at some point as we examine this list, it's, it's going to feel like a scalpel to your soul. You're going to feel like, hey, Paul Phillips, he's preaching right at me today. And maybe today is your day or maybe next week is your week or maybe it's the third week. But at some point, the Apostle Paul is pulling out a scalpel. Jesus mercifully is pulling out a scalpel and he's saying, if you're going to come to me, there's things that you're going to have to put to death. You remember when Jesus calls his first disciples in Matthew chapter four, he's walking along the sea of Galilee and you have these two pairs of brother brothers, Andrew and Peter, and then James and John. And he comes to James and John and he says, come follow me. It's really uh, as, as simple as it possible possibly could be stated. They've heard Jesus. They've had some kind of uh, some sort of relationship with Jesus. Jesus is now forming this band of brothers, these disciples. And he looks at these two brothers and says, come, follow me. But the next line is so, so important for us as disciples of Christ. Matthew writes, so James and John left their boat and their father and followed Jesus. So so in order to follow Jesus, they had to leave their old identity. They had to leave their old career and their and their father, their history. They had to leave things behind in order to follow after Jesus. Jesus is calling people and he's preparing people for an infinite journey. You realize that he's preparing you and I for an infinite journey. And when you're getting ready to take an infinite journey, there's some things that you want to take off. There's some things that you're going to want to put on. And Jesus is, is this master teacher. He understands, hey, the first thing is just come and follow. I'm just wanting you to come towards me. And then as we work together, as you get to know me and I get to know you, I'm going to begin to help you put some things to death. You're on an infinite journey. And some of these things just can't, you can't take with you. And then there's some new things that you're going to need to, to put on. So when we follow after Christ, as we engage in this infinite journey, as we take our first few steps, it's important to understand 
there will be things that we have to leave behind. But because Jesus is Lord, this is Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, because that he is the creator, he's the sustainer, that he holds all things together, we have every reason to trust what he tells us. We don't have any reason to be suspicious. We know that whatever he says, it's very trustworthy. And that we should, we should give ourselves to what he says. And we know that his instructions are for our own good. And the real test of our discipleship is, is not based on our attendance in a community group. It's not based on our exuberance at a worship service. The real test of our discipleship is based on obedience. John chapter 14, Jesus looks at his disciples right at the very end of his life. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So the real test of discipleship, the real test of whether you're on this infinite journey is if are are you taking some things off that he says need to be put to death? Are you putting these new things on? Now, before we examine these things, these, these five words in verse 5, I want to step back and point out some very important, yet very controversial, and I would say some people would think very offensive assumptions that Paul is making. They're not, they're not obvious in the text, but I think as you look at it, you understand Paul is making certain assumptions, and you and I may have those assumptions, but it's helpful to understand them to articulate them, to hear them, and understand that at some level they're going to be controversial. For some it might be even be offensive. But we need to understand them nonetheless. If you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, this sort of parallel passage to Colossians chapter 3, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, much like he's saying to the church at Colossae, do you not know... That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Neither the sexually immoral, idolater, adulterer, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's an amazing phrase to me. He's looking at the church in Colossians, I mean, in Corinthians and said, hey, this list here, that's what you guys were. And Paul's saying, I was one of those guys, too. So, so the first assumption is Paul assumes that we understand that the church is going to be made up of people coming out of dark, dysfunctional habits and histories. Let me say that again. Paul is assuming that you and I understand That the church is going to be made up of people, 100% of people coming out of dark, dysfunctional habits and histories. Nobody walks in saying, I've got it all together. Everybody walks in with some dark habit, some dark history that has to be put to death. I think that's why in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, Paul makes this statement here. Notice that verse 11 here, here inside the church. 
There's not a Greek and a Jew, a circumcised and an uncircumcised, a barbarian, a Scythian, a slave, a free. No, no, there's there's no real difference here. But Christ is all and in all. In other words, people are coming into the church. They're coming from all kinds of background. And each and every background has its own dysfunction. No background is sort of free of dysfunction. Oh, you came in and you didn't have that much dysfunction, so it's easy for you. No, you have a habit. You have a history that has to be put to death, no matter how far away from the church you appear to have come. So Paul's making a very important first assumption that people that make up the church are coming from these kinds of backgrounds. The sexually immoral, notice the the list in Corinthians is very similar to Colossians. And he sort of qualifies who that is, adulterers and those who practice homosexuality. Then greedy people. And then he uses these words, slanderers and swindlers, people who have a significant problem controlling what comes out of their mouth. So first big assumption that's just obvious from reading the text is that Paul's understanding that the, the makeup of the church are people that are coming from these kinds of backgrounds. The second assumption is Paul is assuming we understand that change is both necessary and possible. He's assuming as he gives this list and he says, put to death and put on. He's assuming that change is both necessary and possible. Paul clearly believes people can exercise control over their desires. They're no longer enslaved to their desires. Paul understands the Holy Spirit has come inside and now you're still battling against these desires, but you're not enslaved to them. They're not bigger than the Holy Spirit. There are things that you can change. And and the primary reason this is so controversial or even offensive in our culture is because so many people argue that a person is powerless over his or her sexual orientation. Our broader culture sees the desires in this category to be different than the category of greed or anger. Greed or anger is certainly something you should work to defeat. But sexual preference is simply part of your nature. And it cannot be changed. It maybe should not be changed. It shouldn't be altered. It's not something to be overcome. It's not something to be fought against in our culture. And so when you take these three broad categories and you take them out into the culture, it's very easy for people to embrace, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be greedy. Or you should watch what comes out of your mouth. You should work on your anger. But somehow in our culture today, it's not been this way forever, and it probably won't be this way forever. But today, if you say there's got to be a change in your sexual behavior, then somehow that's a closed door. You hear statements like this. Be yourself. It's how you were made. You should embrace who you are. But the Bible clearly exhorts us not to embrace ourselves. Not to embrace the person that we once were, but the Bible clearly encourages us to embrace Jesus and to embrace the person that he wants us to become. Even if it's terribly difficult, Paul clearly intends us, intends for us to put up a fight. 
Paul's counsel is that no desire or passion is so entrenched in the human soul that a person with the power of the Holy Spirit cannot conquer it. Whether you struggle with sexual immorality or greed or anger, we don't have to become enslaved to those things. The Apostle Paul is an example himself. Before he knew Christ, Paul was a self-righteous religious zealot who rounded up and put to death people who didn't agree with his religious convictions. Think about that today in our own context. Here is a Middle Eastern man who's rounding up people who do not believe in his religious convictions, and he's putting them to death. That's Paul's nature. That's who he was before he met Christ. Then he meets Jesus. And immediately something has to change. He can't stay in his old way. There's some things that have to be put to death. There's some things that have to be added on. And and I don't think anyone would have advised Paul, just embrace yourself. I'm sure they would have said, you need a total transformation. There's something that has to be really put to death in your life. And there's some things that have to be added in that you don't currently have. So so let me repeat just one more time. Paul's making a, a huge controversial assumption. And that is if you're going to follow Jesus, everyone has to leave significant parts of their old identity behind. No one is free from that. And your, your part may have to do with sexual immorality, or it may have to do with greed, or it may have to do with anger. But everybody who hears these words, come and follow. Just come. If you really know Jesus, if you really trust that he's sustaining and he's creating everything, he's making all things good, then you will come and you will know, hey, as I come and I start this infinite journey... I'm going to have to let go of some things. There's some luggage I can't carry. It seemed life-giving in my old self, but now it's just a a terrible burden, a weight. And I've I've got to cut those things off. And as I cut those things on, I'm adding good things that we'll talk about a little bit later. So let's look at this list. Uh, I say that I say that first part because it's important, but I also recognize that there's probably somebody that has some pretty good hostility towards that. And I'm not unsympathetic. And so maybe if you feel like that's uh, judgmental, you feel like it's too harsh, you feel like that assumption is not biblical, then my encouragement to you is to not formulate an argument or a discussion in your own mind, but call me and say, let's like, can we sit down and talk about what you said, especially about uh, sexual identity? Because I think it's easier to talk about it than to just have the conversation in your own mind. Well, let's look at this list. First thing he says is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires. The first thing I want to state up front, because sometimes it doesn't get stated often enough in the church, is that God invented sex and he thinks it's great. 
He's like, yes, that's awesome. I, I created it. I want it to happen. I want people to engage in it. I want people to celebrate in it. It's incredible. It's one of the greatest gifts that he's ever given us. And sometimes when you hear it from the church pulpit, it always seems to be some kind of downcast. And I want to, I want you to hear me say what God is saying. It's awesome. He wrote a whole book about it. The Song of Solomon. He's got a hope. You shouldn't read this if you're not married. I'm just telling you right now. Because when you read that, the, the emotional intensity that moves towards physical intensity, God thinks it's awesome. He, he even uses this intimacy of a great marriage as the closest picture between your relationship to Christ. You know, he's a shepherd, he's a door, he's the bread of life, he's the light of the world, he's all these images, and they don't all quite get to who he is. It's just a way of accommodating to our mind to understand who he is. And really, he wants to say it's, it's closest to like a marriage, a great marriage. That has emotional and physical intimacy. That's what it's most like. And so it, in Revelation, what are we going to, what, what's the end of all things? It's a wedding banquet. And we're the bride. And he's the groom. So it's a, it's a great, it's a great thing. And God's design is for sex to be celebrated between a man and a woman in marriage. That's his definition. That, not our cultural's, culture's definition anymore, but that's God's definition uh, of marriage. A man and a woman and sex is to be celebrated in the context of that covenant relationship. So sexual immorality, this word that Paul is using, is the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography. And so sexual immorality is a distortion of God's original good plan. It specifically refers to any inappropriate physical relationship between unmarried people. Somebody once told me sex is like having a fire in your house. A fire in your house in the fireplace is awesome. A fire in your house in the kitchen is a disaster. So it's great when it's in the right spot. And when it's in the right spot, it should be celebrated. But when it's in the wrong, wrong spot, it just, it's a disaster. It's destructive to lives. So sexual immorality, Paul is specifically saying there, there is a God design for intimacy in this way. It's between a man and a woman who've made this marriage covenant together. And then secondly, he uses three other words, impurity, passions, and evil desires. And they're much more broad in their scope. They generally refer to mental or emotional sexual corruption. It's not specifically talking about physical sexual corruption. That's sexual immorality. It's talking more about our mental and emotional state. Maybe another way to say it is that here he's addressing not the sins of the hands, but the sins of the heart. Paul's moving just past the, the physical contact and he's addressing the desires of the soul. Jesus does the same thing. You might remember Matthew chapter five. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you. 
See, I'm going to tell you something a little bit different than what you're used to. I'm not talking just about the physical context, contact, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery, adultery with her where? In his heart. So Paul and Jesus know that at first sin starts a desire. And if that desire isn't addressed, it comes out and it gets demonstrated. And so Paul and Jesus are like excellent counselors. They understand, hey, there's some, there's some physical things you need to stop doing. But then they're going to not just talk about the fruit of the problem. They're going to try to get to the root of the problem. Why is it you're doing these things? First, let's stop doing them. But then we can't just stop there. We have to address what's the root of the problem in your soul that causes you to desire and hunger for that thing. Let's try to get at that. Without starting another sermon, the root problem is idolatry. Idolatry is dethroning God for the sake of something else. At the moment of sexual immorality, greed, or anger, we have another master. At that moment, it feels like a law. You have to act on it. And it becomes another master, and it feels like if I don't act on this, if I don't say something, I've got to say it. I've got to have it. I've got to be fulfilled. It becomes a terrible master, and it makes you feel like I cannot move on unless that desire is fulfilled. That's idolatry. Now, let me conclude with a quote and a comment. So, this week, I'm trying to Help us really honestly grapple with this assumption that change is necessary and possible for an infinite journey. For those who know, if you don't know Christ here, it's, it's not worth having a discussion about. We're talking about somebody who's ready and willing and responding to come follow me. You are engaged in an infinite journey. And there's some luggage that must be paired off and some new things that must be added on. And specifically, we're talking about sexual immorality and those words there in chapter five. Next week, we want to just focus on the one word covetousness or greed. And then the following week, we'll talk about anger or what comes out of your mouth. So like I said, this little four week series is feels like a scalpel. But I'm thankful if it's healthy, it makes us healthy, and it does. So let me close with one quote and a comment. I was reading uh, in relationship to an iron leadership uh, lesson that we did this week on David and Bathsheba from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote a book called, maybe it was an article, called Temptations. And let me just read it's, it's It's a few sentences long here. I think it's helpful. There is a desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire, ambition, vanity, revenge, or love of fame and power or greed for money. 
At this moment, God seems quite unreal to us. Bonhoeffer says it so clearly. You're seized. It seems sudden. It seems fierce. And what happens is God seems unreal at that moment. God loses all reality. And the only desire... And, and the only desire that's real is, is this other thing. Here, Satan doesn't fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. The powers of clear discernment are taken from us. Everything within us rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us. Now, listen, therefore, the Bible teaches us in these times of temptation in the flesh, there is but one command. Everyone's going to feel this. Maybe it's towards money. Maybe it's towards anger. Maybe it's towards sexual immorality. Everybody's going to feel this sudden, uh, a sudden and fierce desire. And the Bible gives but one command. And he says this. What is it? Flee. Run away. Flee from youthful lust. Flee from the lust of the world. There's no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. There is no resistance to Satan other than flight. Every struggle against it in its one's own strength is doomed to failure. Now, here's what I'm mostly concerned about, especially for men, is that flight seems like immaturity. That somehow if I can't stand against it, then I'm immature. I'd say that's totally backwards. The most mature response in that, per, in that place is to run away. To get out of the situation. Whatever the cost, whatever the embarrassment, is just to move completely away from it. That's a very mature response to sexual temptation. Not an immature response. One quote, one comment. Sometimes people might think, why is God withholding what I want sexually? Especially because it feels so good. Have these desires, when they're fulfilled, they do feel good. They're as powerful as any feeling that I could have as a human being. And it feels like God's withholding something good for me. Why is that? So many ways to answer. I want to answer just with a quote. I was reading recently of a man commenting, commenting on his own sexual addictions, especially with prostitution and pornography. And this is what he said. I no longer look at women as people, only as objects. So when a culture where one group of people are seen only as objects, it will become a brutal culture. So when God is withholding something, you should be able to say it's for our own health. Not just my health, but the health of the whole community. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And because he's the Lord, we have every reason to trust what he teaches. We have every reason to obey his instructions. We have every reason to, 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 to carve off the things he's saying that are harmful, to add the things that he wants us to. And we must believe that as we 
take those things off and put those things on. Jesus understands it's for your own good. Whether you feel like it or not. Let me end maybe on a lighter illustration. How many of you have been to a fitness center? The Y, Golds, wherever you go. And uh, some guy or girl, I just noticed the guys mostly, older, maybe, let's say 51, a little out of shape. I'm not thinking of anybody particularly, I'm just imagining someone. They get a personal trainer. Usually, what, 22, three ounces of body fat, never ate anything bad for themselves. Pretty much you want to hurt them when you see them. And this fitness instructor is giving instructions to this 51-year-old, a little bit out of shape guy. And when you walk by, it looks like torture, as far as I can tell. Like, can you get in the plank position and hold that for like three days? I mean, I'm like, no, can't hold it for three seconds. It's just torture. So I just go sit on the bench and watch. I don't really exercise. I just watch what's happening. But you, but you know, and I know, do we not? This person needs to lose some things. And the person is helping them. It's for their own health. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, to let go of some of these things is going to be painful, but it's for their own good. Not only today, but five years from now and 25 years from now, it has so many more benefits. But at the moment, it may, it may seem painful. But, but we can endure that kind of pain because we know we have a God who's good. He's looking out for your health, not only just your health, the whole community. Let's pray together. Lord, this, this is a hard text uh, for Paul and the people at Colossae. It's not easy for them. They, they've come out of a very dysfunctional culture. And it's not easy 2,000 years later for people who live in Wilmington, North Carolina, whose culture has, has, is awash in sin and tries to promote it as the Savior, to, to put those things to death, to add things to our life, it's going to be difficult. But we're grateful for your instruction that we're not left to ourselves. We're grateful for... The Holy Spirit that is able to help us put things to death, to add things that are healthy to our lives. And I pray for your people now. That you would help them to to honestly assess themselves, to, to get the help that they need to move in an obedient direction towards you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.